All right, and am I am I able to share the screen? Yeah, I'll just okay. say a couple of words, Rabbi. Before. Oh, I thought that you said the words. All right, oh, we're waiting for you. I want to make sure that you're. Oh, by all means, say the words. Um, okay, so so welcome everybody. I hope everyone had a very relaxing and enjoyable summer break, and it's a real pleasure to see many familiar faces, but uh, also our new members and friends watching now and also listening later to our podcasts and our recordings. Uh, Baruch Abba. Um, it's really exciting, and I'm absolutely delighted to be back here with all of you to start this new season of learning. Uh, we have a very exciting syllabus and curriculum with uh, fascinating topics, really exciting, um, amazing, wonderful teachers, and it's really good to have you with us. So for those of you new to the Chabura, just a word on it. My name is Avi Garson. I'm the co-founder together with my very good friend Sina Kahen, who's the brains and the powerhouse behind everything we do. And a shout out to Eli Shaubi, who runs our Israel wing, who's done really a fantastic job. And for those of you who speak Hebrew, um, check out our content there. For all our new listeners, the Chabura is an online Bet Midrash comprised of students from across the world that draws inspiration from the classical Sephardi approach to Torah and life. And we're looking to raise awareness of this tradition and to learn about its outlook and its Chachamim and its rich literature and also to emulate the model um, which believes that the world and the Torah were written by the same author and they must inform each other. Uh, we have two classes every week. Um, we have a wide range of rabbis, educators, experts. Um, we focus on halakha, mikra, Jewish thought. And while some of our classes are exclusive for, for members, others like this one are, are public. Um, but please consider becoming a, a member to support our initiative and the, the publishing house where we've released four books. We have uh, five journals and several projects in the pipeline. Uh, we also have live events and meetups. Um, I have personally just moved to New York and we're looking to expand our activities there. So for those of you um, in the tri-state area, do get in touch. We look to um, you know get things going here in the US as well. Uh, we have discussion forums, we have Q&A groups um, and a really wide range of a network so you can connect with teachers and members from across the world. So um, I'm just good. I've said enough. So I'm going to pass on to our regular host, Ohad Fedida, who's going to introduce to tonight's speaker and uh, our Rosh Bed Midrash. Um, Ohad, Bechavod. Thank you so much, Avi. So I usually uh, open it up. Um, I think Avi really covered everything, who we are, what we do. Um, it's very exciting. It's uh, so exciting to see all the faces and all the new faces, and we're going to have an awesome year together. Um, I highly recommend checking out our website and joining. You can do that on thechabura.com slash join. Also check out, as Avi mentioned, the Israel division run by Eli Shobi. We have an awesome curriculum over there. Also our, the, our, our publishing house over there, so make sure to, to check that out. Um, today, we have with us our Rosh Bet Midrash, Senior Rabbi of the S&P Communities of the UK, Rabbi Joseph Dweck. It is always a privilege and honor when we get to hear from Rabbi Dweck. Um, I wanted to specifically just take this moment to thank Rabbi Dweck and our dear Sina Khan and Avi and Eli Shobi and all the people who do so much work in putting this together and making it possible. Uh, so with that said, thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Very excited for New Year and GB. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, Rav Ohad, as ever. It's always uh, lovely to uh, to be introduced by you, actually. I very, very much appreciate it. And um, it's good to see you. And thank you, uh, Avi, and of course, Sina, uh, for all that uh, you've 
done and do in order to be able to ensure the Chaburah's moving and uh, development and success. But we must also thank everybody who's here who actually make up the Chaburah itself, right? And so uh, I'm very grateful uh, to all of you who are here uh, tonight and um, and uh, participating in our inaugural shiur. I also want to recognize the Montefiore Endowment and uh, the Dengur family for their uh, tremendously generous support and faith in the Chabura and its developments. And we always hope that they uh, have nachat from, you know, how, how it is that the Chabura is developing. So I we don't have a lot of time and I want to get into this. So I'm going to dive in. The, the subject for tonight's shiur, the title for tonight's shiur is Shouldn't We All Be Haredim? And uh, and one of the one of the Talmudim this morning was with me and said, you know, it's a nice clickbait uh, title, which I suppose it is. But it isn't a title that I chose simply for clickbait. I chose the title because it's a genuine question. And it is a question that I experience coming up more and more in terms of my interactions with people and just how it is that people kind of see the the Orthodox Jewish world. And I'll explain. It, It happens very often that the kind of concept amongst the general masses of of, of Jewish people, certainly those kind of within the base of, of, of orthodoxy, uh, believe on one level or another that the heights of orthodoxy really are achieved by the Haredim, right? In other words, that is the ideal. Like if, if everybody only could be able to be that uh, level of religious, um, it would be good. Right, that's that's a positive that that everybody should ultimately try and achieve that, and it's very understandable as to why we can we can kind of look at that tonight. What what is it about the approach to Judaism that the Haredi community um, takes that signals this idea? Right, that that this is perhaps the highest level of of, of service and 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 avodah that we might call it to to Akadosh Baruch Hu. Now, before I get any further in this, I recognize that there is any time that we use nomenclature like this to talk about a group of people, a massive group of people, we are already in in uh, treading uh, dangerous territory. Because what do we mean when we say Haredi? I mean, it's very important to to, to recognize that there is a huge difference in the Haredi community, right? If we use that term as a broad term, there's a huge difference in terms of people who will recognize themselves or define themselves as being Haredim, but nonetheless quite unique and different from so many other people who identify as being part of the Haredi community. And there are all different kinds of attributes to the various groups within the Haredi movement. So what my task was, right, it, it meant that I had to kind of really think about this because people talk about Haredim in general all the time. Right, I think I do it. I think everybody here does it. They do it, right, with regards to themselves. It's 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 certainly referenced. And so, in order to be able to address what I want to address in the shiur, right, I think that we have to be able to find some element of common denominator. Right, what is the common denominator that, for the most part, right, I'm I'm sure it's not always uh, exhaustive and all inclusive, right, but for the most part, a self-defined Haredi would ascribed to, right, would recognize, yes, that is essentially a base philosophy 
of our approach, right, to living uh, 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 an observant life and a dedicated life to Torah and mitzvot and ultimately a Kadosh Baruch. So interestingly, I mean, I could use my own kind of perception, but but in order to be able to get a broader uh, idea, I asked several people. And I asked a whole bunch, a whole range of people, right, what uh, you might be one of them, you know, if you're hearing me. I asked a whole range of people, well, what is a Haredi? In other words, if you had to find, right, the key the key points as to what makes a Haredi, Haredi, what would it be? And I heard a whole bunch of stuff back, right? And I'm going to tell you, for the most part, what it is that I heard back, but... Uh, in my opinion, what I did see is a common denominator and in all of the feedback that I got, right? So I got things like, you know, they dress, the dress code is very important. You know, the, 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 there's a, you know, black and white is very important to be able to recognize in terms of the dress code. Okay, that's one thing, perhaps uh, uh, there's conformity, there's insularity that uh, people might identify with regards to them. But of course, all of this is in range, right? There are ranges of insularity within the Haredi community, are ranges of uh, conformity within the, the Haredi community. And there's even ranges of dress code within the, the Haredi community. I mean, it's it's fascinating what one can do with black and white. You know, there's all kinds of cuts and and uh, and styles and, and, you know, the hats. There's a whole range of, you know, what it is, that, what kind of hat a person wears and how to identify how... There's a whole... There's a whole uh, thing with regards to that as well. But I, I, I think that all of the ideas that, again, we'll get into these a little bit more de- in, in a little bit more detail, but I think that all of these come down to one thing that I kept hearing over and over again, and that is essentially this. The uniting attribute, right? Uh, and before I say this, I'm going to say, I am completely prepared to be proven wrong. Right. I, I am not saying this as a hard-clad assertion, right? If, if you know, there's a, a whole bunch of uh, people who believe that I'm absolutely incorrect in this assertion, then by all means, let's have part two and debate it. But I, I'm going to give this class on this premise, and, and that is that it, I believe that the unifying, uniting attribute of the broad Haredi uh, community uh, around the world, right? There's different Haredi communities in different places, and the Haredim of Eretz Israel are not necessarily the Haredim of Chutzlar, the Haredim within Eretz Israel, not necessarily like all the Haredim within Eretz Israel, so and so forth. But the one unifying and uniting, uniting attribute is the attitude towards secular society and the contributions that secular society can make to a person's life who is living a life of Torah and mitzvot and dedication to Kadosh Baruch right? So that's number one, right? What What is the idea with regards to secular society and secular thought for that matter, right? Secular thought, secular wisdom. The, the relationship to that is very much a unifying element. And I'm going to unpack that. And there's another thing. There's another side to that coin. And the other side to that coin is Torah study and halachic lifestyle is the fundamental core of life and service to God, right? So, so the, the, the preeminent, the most important thing, right, is Torah study. Everything uh, in, the, in the world, right, Everyone, everything in, in, in one's world, if one is part of the Haredi community, essentially is to be seen and, and based only in Torah, right? Torah is exclusive, right, to, to everything else outside of what it is we find in the proper text, and Mesorah of Torah. So that's that's my premise, right? And so so to develop that a little bit, right? Secular thought, study, wisdom, 
ideals are only valuable in terms of their enabling Torah study and halachic lifestyle, right? So it's not that secular society is not valuable. It's not that secular thought or, or wisdom is not valuable. It is not intrinsically valuable, right? It's important to recognize that for the majority of the Haredi community, there is not intrinsic value in it, but it is valuable in as much as it can facilitate Torah study and halachic living, right? So if I need to be able to earn a living so that I can study Torah or so that people can study Torah and therefore be able to live a strong and robust halachic lifestyle, well then, very, very well. That's that's what we need to do. And we need to engain, engage with it as necessary. And that can open up a whole range of things, right? You can have a, a Haredim that are studying medicine, that are that are deeply embedded in the business world, and so on and so forth. But the question is, what is the relationship to these things? The relationship to these things is that they facilitate the Torah life and study, right? So if they could get by without this, it would be better. So it is we it is essentially something that people put up with, right? They deal with in as much as they as is necessary to do. Now again, there is range to this, but this is the underlying premise. Yeah. So there may be uh members of the Haredi community that will self-identify as being members of the of the Haredi community that nonetheless enjoy secular aspects of life and engage in secular aspects of life, but they nonetheless will have the, the, the identifying elements that are for all intents and purposes external in order to be able to maintain belonging to the community, right? So that's that's the next step. So once we recognize that that's the core idea, that the core idea is that uh, the secular thought and secular society does not bring any existential truth with it, nor does it bear any intrinsic value, but that it facilitates in whatever capacity it can, Torah learning and Torah life, that is the idea. The question then is, well, how do we maintain this and facilitate, right, facilitate this? And, and the way that this is maintained and facilitated is the way that any human group would essentially want to maintain and facilitate an exclusive group. Right to be able to recognize this group needs to be seen as this, and therefore there are certain trappings, literally trappings, that that are required in order to be able to facilitate it. So part of that, almost always, and this is not just a religious thing, although it certainly manifests religiously, is very much a human thing, will manifest in dress code. In other words, you will belong to a particular group, and one of the best ways to show that you belong to a particular group is to dress like the group dresses and that there should be dress that the group dresses, right? Yeah, dresses. That's not fundamental to the nature of the group, but it is absolutely essential to keeping the group because it maintains the, the connection to the fold, as it were. So when I say that there may be members of the Haredi community that do engage in secular uh, involvement and life and, and thought and so on, even for its own sake, right? Which is not the party line. It's not the party line, even though if there may be individuals who do that, if they dress the way that they're meant to dress and say the things essentially that they are meant to say and behave otherwise in ways that they are essentially expected to behave in terms of core ideas, they recognize as members of the community. The only time that that starts to be a problem 
is when things are said that really undermine the fundamental premise that I just expressed right at the beginning. So this is all, you know, all opening. Another aspect that was presented with regards to the Haredi community is that it tends not to be sensitive to aesthetics. In other words, aesthetics, qua aesthetics, right? In other words, the pursuit of art, the pursuit of beauty, the recognition of that value in terms of human life and experience vis-a-vis God and the Torah is not something that's held as a high ideal. But that again goes back to the point of the secular world and secular life, right? If it isn't intrinsic in Torah, if it isn't inherent in Torah, in Talmud, in the writings essentially of the Hakamim, and it's not expressed clearly that way, it isn't recognized as a high ideal. It is used only in order to be able to facilitate and nothing more. So that's very important as well, right? So all, and even the insularity, of course the insularity is something that happens because in order to be able to maintain a group that is interested specifically in not engaging in secular life, there needs to be trappings imposed in order that that group should be maintained that way, right? Now, the the, the interesting thing is that from a value-neutral perspective, the Haredi community seems to be extremely successful. Why? Because these elements that they are that they implement, right, in order to be able to hold together a, a group are extremely effective from a psychological point of view, right? Because human beings have a very deep need to belong. It is it is uh it's primal, right? Because we are social, we are social animals. And not belonging to a group is tantamount to to death for a human being. It's it's very serious, right? It's very serious. And therefore, because it's so primal, it is a relatively ready and available element of human engagement that can be played upon or that can be engaged with. So to belong to the community, right, to be able to be part of the community is very attractive, and it is absolutely part of how it is the community runs, right? You either are in or not, right? You're recognized as part or recognized as, as, as out, right? So one is either in or one is out. And therefore, the trappings are very effective. The dress, the, the behavior, right? The fact that everybody kind of does the same thing, carries the same path, moves in the same circles, uh, engages with the same people, and so on and so forth. Is very powerful, and that works. Uh, it add to that birth rate, right? Which is certainly something that's that's held as a very high ideal. Uh, certainly in the Haredes, I mean, it's in general in Orthodox Judaism, it's a high ideal, but it's 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 even higher in terms of the the Haredi community, and that is also in order to be able to perpetuate the you know the kahala, and they recognize that as a high ideal, and it's a mitzvah, right? and that's a mitzvah that they that is done bihidur, right? That is done. In, in its fullest sense. So when you couple birth rate, right, high birth rate with these trappings that are very important to maintaining a, a group, from a value neutral perspective, the Haredim are extremely successful, right? There's there's high number, there's retention, and it seems to be growing and growing, right? It's developing and developing. And uh, that is the reality. Another aspect that, that people recognize with regards to the Haredi community 
is that there is strong hierarchical authority, right? So there's definitely a high level of authority given to the uh, to the to the rabbinic figures that are in kind of in charge of establishing how Torah is to be understood or how Torah is to be interpreted or what the law of Torah is. And that also has a great deal to do with being able to keep the 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 group intact, right? To be able to maintain a strong and solid social system. Uh, so that's, those are all those are all, all all parts of it. Now the truth of the matter is, this essential premise is not new, right? In other words, the, the idea that out there is threatening. And that what it is that we find safe and secure is our Torah and the words of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And for that matter, the interpretation of the Hachamim, the words of the Hachamim, is our solace and our home and where it is that we belong, is not something that is new. And the truth of the matter is, one could find this, certainly in the in the words of the Torah and for that matter, in the words of the Hachamim. There's good premise for it. And, and, and I want to look at that with you, right, to be able to recognize that this is not, the you know, this approach, right, again, I, I'm taking into account that there is a myriad of difference amongst the Haredim, right, within the Haredim community. I'm simply looking at the broad stroke, o- overarching elements of them, right, that that essentially recognize or ass- that one would establish as Haredim as opposed to non-Haredim. And that, like I said, has a great deal to do, A, with the recognition of of uh, scrutiny and uh, you know the questioning of of, of secular value, uh, in addition to seeing Torah as being absolutely central, and all that really one should be focused on, right? That one should only be thinking in Torah and studying in Torah and building through that system of Torah. So it's not an old it's not an old idea. I'm going to have a look at the um, the source sheet with you just to be able to have a look at just a, a sample, right, of of some of these things that uh, that seem to be this way. Let's see if I can do this. Is that good? Everybody sees? Right? Okay. So I might as well start from the Torah, really. The Torah uh, says as follows, right? With regards to the Jewish people, this is the words of Bil'am, right? We have some beautiful birachot from Bil'am. You know, the Matovo, Halecha Yaakov, Mishkenotecha Yisrael. It's all Bil'am. Bil'am says, uh, as part of Torah, Ki ennu, right? I see I see the whole people, right? From, from, from a bird's eye view, essentially. From the very top of the mountains. Right? And you want to know what I can say about the um, the nation of Israel? It is a nation that, that dwells alone, dwells separate. And they are not counted essentially. They're not they're not recognized, tallied amongst the rest of the Goyim or amongst the rest of the nations. They are a unique nation, a nation set apart, a nation essentially to themselves. Yeah. That's an interesting pasuk, can be interpreted in several ways, but certainly, you know, recognizes Am Yisrael as a unique and separate nation. With regards to the Torah, says in Pirkei Avot very famously, Ben Bagbag Omer, Hafochba Vafochba. Ben Bagbag says, just keep turning over Torah, turn over Torah, get through the Torah, study Torah over and over and over again. Why the Chulaba? Everything's in it. And if you recognize that, there really isn't any reason why you should be spending your time for doing anything else than studying Torah. You are a separate nation. You are not a member of the... You're not counted as a, as a, amongst all the other nations of the world. The Torah has everything in it. 
not only that, that it has everything in it, that is what you should be seeing everything through, right? Look through the Torah. You should wither, essentially, in your study of the Torah. It should bring you to a point where all of your energies and all of your efforts are essentially with regards to your engagement with Torah. You should move from it, shouldn't veer from it. You don't have a better measure than Torah. Right? So ostensibly, it seems that uh, there is good base, at least from this Mishnah, for the premise that is put out by, by, by the Haredim. I mean, it sounds like quite a lofty premise, which may make sense, right? To be able to say, perhaps, perhaps there is something to be said about that being the highest level of living in Judaism. And that maybe we should all strive to be all sitting in yeshiva as much as we can, to be only considering what does Torah say and how does halacha uh, speak without any regard of what it is that's going on outside. Right? Because that is a major aspect of how the Haredim uh, live their lives. Uh, they look at all social, secular developments, right, developments of the outside world as uh, as questionable. They don't shun it outright. I mean, there are elements of it they may choose later on to incorporate in some capacity. I mean, they still use tele- they use telephones, they use computers, right? You know, there's, there's, there's greater use of smartphones nowadays, although very minimal. It, but it's suspect. It's suspect until it's until it's proven in any way I- I- innocent or or capable of being used. There's a Gemara in Masechet Kedushin. Right, where Rabbi Nehorai says, There's a discussion there in the Gemara that it's important for a person to teach his child uh, a trade in order they should be able to support themselves and, and you know have a, a life of sustenance in the world. Rabbi Nehorai comes in and he says, He says, You know what? I, I would leave every trade in the world, right? Every, every artisan aspect of the world. Any Torah. I would only teach my children Torah. Right? Only Torah. Why? Why? Because there's benefit to be had in studying Torah in this world. It's filled with wisdom. Not only that, it's the, the whole the whole uh, reward for it, all of its great output is is held for a person also in Olam Abba in the world to come. So you have the best of both worlds, literally, according to Rina Horai. I don't need to spend any time in anything else. All of the other traits aren't like that. Why? Okay, a person's a carpenter, a person's a tailor, a person's even in business, whatever the case you want, whatever the case may be, a person gets sick, or they get older, or they're having hardships, and they can't work. Right? They have to be on leave. They're not able to work. And if they can't work properly and they don't have proper, you know, welfare in order to be able to care of them or, you know, state aid like we have today, the person dies in hunger. Torah is not like that. The study of Torah protects a person, right? It's important. It's certainly a belief of ours. From the time that he's young, gives him an end and hope in the end of his life, right? I mean, there's wisdom. A person's wisdom stays with him throughout his entire life. And he gives psukim to be able to prove this. So certainly premise for this. And there's a famous uh, Midrash in Shirashirim. Not just about uh, Torah study being central and the only real focus that Am Yisrael should have, but also the trappings. 
Jewish names, maintaining the Jewish language, right? I mean, we have to recognize that certainly amongst the Ashkenazi uh, world for hundreds of years, nothing was written outside of Hebrew. This is pre the development of Yiddish, right? But nobody wrote anything outside of Hebrew. Not like Harambam and Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagaon and the, the others in Sepharad who wrote in the vernacular in Arabic. No, everybody, certainly amongst the Ashkenazi, they're only in Hebrew. And then when Yiddish came along, that was even more so, right? If you have a language that is absolutely, completely unique, it's not something that, that you know, uh, 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 priests are studying in order to be able to have biblical exegesis. Nobody gets into the Yiddish. Well, that's even better. And so it says in Shir Hashim Rabbah, Rabbi Huna B'Shem Bar Kapara Amar, B'Shkut Arba'a Devarim Negeru Yisrael Mitzrayim. There's four things that got B'nai Yisrael out of Mitzrayim. They're living in secular society. They're living amongst, amongst a goy that is not anywhere near them or like them. And why did they get out? They didn't change their names. They didn't change their language. It says they didn't speak Lashonara and they weren't Parutz Be'arva. They weren't uh, uh, licentious and engaged in uh, uh, um, inappropriate uh, sexual behavior. Right? Well, I mean, certainly not changing your name and not changing your language is a big one, which certainly the Haredi community holds very strongly. Right? It's something that they resist tremendously. And the Midrash seems to say that that is definitely one of the major factors that saved the people from, from assimilating and from losing themselves in, in Mitzrayim. So look, th- this is something that is that is important for us to be able to recognize and, and acknowledge. And it's important to recognize also that one might think that this is an Ashkenazi Svaradi thing, but not necessarily. Not necessarily, because I will say that although there may be a particular flavor of this that one identifies as Ashkenazi, right? There's no question about the fact that in the Sephardi world, there were definitely ideas like this. That it is not helpful to, first of all, there's no value in studying secular ideas, right? It's not worth it. And when I say it's not worth it, right, there, there has to be an understanding, and we're going to get into this a little bit, there are risks, right? There's understandable risks. If I open myself to studying secular ideas, and I don't have a, a good knowledge of Torah, I end up losing my entire base in what Torah might there, be there to teach me, the whole frame that Torah is there to be able to provide for my life, and I end up framing my life in a foreign frame. And I lose ultimately my whole capacity to connect to Torah and what and and uh, and a, a Jewish way of seeing the world and living. So this was definitely the case in Baghdad for a long time, right? Until very recently, right? That definitely thought with regards to this, right? The Benish Hai absolutely believed, right? And his whole group, right? The majority of his ilk absolutely believed that outside of Torah, nobody needed to really learn anything else. That should be what everybody learns. Hacham Yosef believed this. Believed. Torah should be all that a person learns unless there's need for logistical reasons to study other things, you study other things. But not because there is intrinsic value in studying the other things. And that is why, for all intents and purposes, sent his children to what quote-unquote Haredi Yeshivot because he held an alignment with that belief. And he identified with that. 
Now, there were elements that were not the same, right? Because Hacham did believe that one should live engaged in society. If a person has a good knowledge of Torah, and that's what they're doing, he should try and live engaged in society. So he became Rishon Nitzion. Why, why become Rishon Nitzion? There were many Haredi Ashkenazim that, that, that attacked him for becoming the Rishon Nitzion. So how could you engage in the government? You shouldn't be engaged in the government. The government is, is secular. The government is outside. The government is not part of the world of Torah. And just because you're a rabbi in it doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. So there are people, I remember when Hacham came to Los Angeles, uh, the yeshivot would not allow their student to come hear him speak because he was from the government of Israel. There's no reason why you should listen to this man speak. right? So there was differences, but this core idea was absolutely there. He held that. So it's not so clean and not so clear that this is an, an Ashkenazi Sephardi thing, right? This is a mindset that is actually very old within the Jewish people. I believe in some form it goes all the way back to Yosef and his brothers. And, and I've said this before in Shiurim and the, in the, in the uh, Chabura, right? And elsewhere for that matter. But it, I think that its roots, its primal progenitors, right, are essentially Yosef and his brothers, which we'll look at in a minute. But this idea is there, right? Okay, what's the alternative, right? So the alternative is, well, it may not be that secular knowledge and uh, wisdom, for that matter, is necessarily only valuable logistically, right? In other words, it may be that there is intrinsic value in the truths of what one learns in quote-unquote secular knowledge and wisdom, and that it is valuable to study for its own sake, right? In other words, it's valuable to study because of the, the wisdom that it gives us, right? Now, this is very important. Because what we're going to see is that there is only a specific, a specific thing that it gives us. It's not just because we love wisdom. We don't. And that's important to recognize. Contrary to popular belief, right, that maybe people might think, the Jews don't just love wisdom because we like to be smart. The Haredim are right, as far as that's concerned. The Torah is central. The question is, the study of uh, ideas, thought, wisdom that is not directly presented in Torah, is there value in it, qua the study of it, and if so, what? Right. So what I'm going to say to you is, the value is not just that it's something that brings us intelligence. Or for that matter, it's not because it teaches us about the world. As far as the Torah is concerned, studying the world, qua studying the world, is not necessarily an endeavor that we're interested in as Jews from a classical normative approach. There's something more to it. And that is that we have a major goal. And the major goal is to know God. And if we are to study and get to know God, we need to be able to study and know the world. And that's a major point of, of difference, right? Haridi might say, it's not worth it. The risk is too great. So you endeavor to know God, but lose yourself. By doing that, better to stay back within, keep your hands and legs inside the tram at all times. And don't venture out, right? 
Don't venture out. And you get to know God, you know how? By studying Torah. That's how you get to know God. The alternative approach, and I will say that it is the approach of the Chabura, right? It is definitely our approach. It's, it's an alternative approach. And that is that we absolutely do study the world. And we study the world not just because it'll help us study Torah. Actually, it's quite the opposite, which I'll explain in a minute. We don't just study the world maybe it'll help us study Torah or to help us with halakhic life. We study the world because we recognize the world as an expression of God. And that through the study of the world, we come to know him. So I want to be clear about this. There is no value, as far as, as the normative, classical, orthodox, right, for lack of a better term, right, Torah faithful view of Judaism is concerned, there is no value in studying qua studying. There is value in studying in order to better know the world through which I better know God. That's the ultimate point, right? That's the ultimate point. Anything less than that is essentially like the, it's, it's some aspect of Haredim, right? Of what the Haredim are pointing out. So even if you come to what we would look at as YU's, uh, you know, the Yeshiva University's ideal, for example, right? Yeshiva University, remember, is coming out of this approach, right? To some degree. The approach of the old world in Europe was we study Torah, study, Torah is our main focus, and that's all we need. We have to just make sure that that's what we take care of. And anything else that we do, we do in order to be able to facilitate our Torah life. So what, what why you came up with, or essentially put, pointed out in the modern world, which is why it ended up being called modern orthodoxy, right? because the world changed after the Enlightenment and so on and so forth, is that it is logistically necessary to study, but not just to make a living. Certainly to make a living, but to be able to live as a conscious person in the world, you need to be able to learn the secular studies as well. So Torah umada. You have to study Torah, but you also have to study Mada. Why? Because Mada facilitates a robust life in the world so that you don't feel like you're living on an island somewhere and incapable of being able to engage in the world as a regular human being, right? And the difference was they didn't want to live in a ghetto anymore. They didn't want to live in a insular closed off society they believe that it's important to live in the world and if we're going to live in the world then what we need to do is we need to study Torah and we also need to study Mada and what I'm saying is that our approach in the Chabura is not this and not that it's not this and not that and so now I'm going to show you some of the 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 bases right for for this for this point the alternative and that is this and these are things that I'm sure you've heard me say before, but not necessarily in this context, right? In, in contrast to what it is that I'm presenting. So the first thing I'm going to show you is, is a letter from Haramban, right? Now, all of this essentially is Haramban. Not because he was the only one who saw things this way, but he was the strongest, most eloquent, most powerful proponent of this point, right? That what? To study the world is to come to know God. And that's the way that we do it. So the first thing I want to show you is a letter. One of Harambam's letters. And some students wrote to Harambam and said, you know, this Gemaran Shabbat that says that we all have to learn how to be mehashev tikufotu mazalot, right? We have to learn the, math, the maths in order to be able to deal appropriately with the astronomical movements of the stars and the sun and the moon, and to be able to know how it is that we calculate the new moon and, and the seasons and so on and so forth. 
And when we do that, that is your wisdom in, in, in the eyes of all of the, you know, the nations of the world. You, you have to learn how to do this. So they asked the Rambam, you know, how do you do this and what is it? And then they ask him this. I'm going to show you it in a minute, but I'm giving you paraphrase. Then they ask him, and by the way, and this is a question. means what's going to come out of this? I mean, I'm going to say, okay, great. So we're going to know now how to do all of the maths, right? To calculate all of these things. Well, I mean, it's like, we're not writing calendars. Every single individual is not writing calendars and, and planning new moon. What's the point of the study? Which is precisely the question that we're dealing with, right? In other words, that question of Mayetzemizeh is essentially a Haredi question, right? Mayetzemizeh. If you can tell me Mayetzemizeh logistically, uh, you know, practically, well then fine. But I want to know, why should I be taking time away from studying Torah and study this? And that's a major question. And it's so old, it's at least 900 years old with the Rambam, right? I mean, almost 900 years old, but certainly been asked before. So what does the Rambam say? So take a look. So Rambam says as follows. Am I showing you the right? Am I showing you my notes? Yeah, I'm showing you my notes. I want to show you my source sheet. Which is the source sheet? No, this I want to show you. Okay. So have a look. So Rambam in his Igeret, he says as follows. This is one of his letters. They're asking about the Gemara that says, mm-hmm. A person who knows how to do the maths, to be able to figure out all of these astronomical things and doesn't do it, he's not showing his wisdom, he's showing that he's not, he's ignorant, so on and so forth. So they ask him, How are you supposed to do this? <laughs> they ask him the question, like he should teach them a math lesson. And he says, and then they say, What will be the benefit of this? Right? What, what benefit do we get from this? So Rambam says, look. He said, look, it's a whole chokmah, right? You have to learn the whole chokmah. And then he says here, I'm in the bolded place. He goes, but this, this thing that you say, what will come out of this? He said, Rabbi Meir already explained what comes out of it in a baraita. When he said, Look at his deeds, which essentially is Maase Bereshit. From looking at what he's made and what he's done, You come to know the one who spoke and created the world. So what is the goal of this study as far as Harambam is concerned? The goal of the study is to know God. That's very serious. Because what that implies is if you don't study it, you don't really know God. Now Harambam drives this home. He says it over and over and over again in many ways. Right. So there's the Moreh Nebuchim that I, I, I mean I've spoken about this Moreh Nebuchim ad nauseum. Right? I, I, there's almost not a shiur that I don't mention this morning in practically anymore. Right? I hope everybody knows it already. But this is in this, in this part of the Morin Nebuchim, Harabam says that when Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm just putting it here for text for you, and I'll give you the link, right, so you can have this after the shiur, that when Moshe Rabbeinu says to Kadosh Baruch Hu, show me your ways so I can know you. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's response to him is, okay, 
I will show you my ways. You know what my ways are? I will put all of my good before you. And through that you will know me. Says Harambam, what is all of his good? And this is what we'll, we'll look at. He says, So he says, The fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, I'm going to give you kol to be, what is that? He showed him all of existence, the entirety of creation, about which it is said, It's the entirety of Maaseh Rashid. He showed him all of creation. He didn't give him some esoteric, mystical insights into what it means to be God. He didn't show him secrets of the Torah. No, he showed him Maseh Bereshit. Because it said, Kol Tuvi. Kavanati says Arambam even more clearly, He put it all in front of him in a matrix. So he didn't just see, here's a bird, here's a giraffe, here's a bear. He saw the entirety of Maseh Bereshit interconnected with every other detail of Maseh Bereshit. He saw the full matrix of Maseh Bereshit, which meant he saw everything in its fullest value, himself included. Their connection, this with the other. He then knew how God runs it all, how it is that it's all put together, both in terms of details and the general, the general principles. And therefore, in other words, when he says about Moshe Rabbeinu, that he is faithful in all my house, what he is referring to, says Harambam HaKadosh Baruch when he says that, Moshe knows my entire world. He knows it all. And he grasped it all. And the amazing thing is that Harambam says over here at the beginning, I want to show this to you, right? Because you say, okay, well, that's great. So Moshe Rabbeinu got that. Some people get that. What's the big deal if I don't get that? What's the big deal if I just sit and study Gemara all day? Or I just want to study Torah all day? Whatever it is that I'm studying. And I'm not studying the world and everything that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created to the capacity that I can. So he says here, Because I want you, Harambam says to you, I want you to pay attention to what's expressed in Moshe's phraseology of his question here. Just in the language, which is remarkable, says the Rambam. Mufla, it is, it is beyond, right? It's extraordinary. He said, He said, show me your ways and I will know you. Melamed, what does that teach us? How is God known? By his expressions. That if you know his ways, which we see in the end are essentially his creations, you then know him. He doesn't just stop there. He doesn't say, and I will know you. He says, I will know you so that I may find favor in your eyes. How does one find favor in God's eyes? It's not just being religious. Which is essentially what Rambam is saying. It's not just the people that fast and pray all the time. That's not it. Not alone. A person who knows him. That person is desired by God. That person is close to God. 
A person who doesn't know him, that person is far from God. That's a very important point that the Rambam is making. So now the Rambam doesn't only say that, right? Rambam doesn't just say, listen, this is the way that you need to know God. He doesn't give an alternative, by the way. He's saying, look, another way to do this is to study Torah. Which means we have to understand what the what the point of studying Torah is. He says, this is the way that you know God. And if you don't do this, you cannot know Him. There is no way to get there. And it's the one who knows Him that is essentially the one that is close and desired by God. And he brings later the Pasuk in Tehilim Tzadi Aleph, Yosheb Beseter Aliyon. At the end of Yosheb Beseter Aliyon, it says, Asagebehu. I will lift this person up and protect this person. Why? Because he knows my name. He knows who I am. Yeah. So then the Rambam says, look, it's not just about knowing God. It's about loving God. Because to know Him is to love Him. And you can't love Him if you don't know Him. They're intrinsically connected. So he says this, He says, right? How are you supposed to love God? I know that it says Yirato, we'll come back to that in a minute. How do you love God? When a person contemplates his deeds, his actions, which essentially is Maasib Rashid, Ubruav and his creations, Haniflaim, which are wondrous, right? Hagidulim, which are massive, amazing. And he sees the wisdom that went into all of it, right? He studies it and understands it. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's massive. It's beyond having any real ends. He immediately loves. Because he comes to know the one who made it. And if you know him, you love him, says the Rambam. And you just praise him. And all you want is to come to know him even more. Through that study. And you want to know Hashem HaGadol, the great name. Why, why the name? The name is how God's known, right? You can't know God in His direct nature, right? You go know God in terms of how is He known? How is He known? Through what is it He did? And what does the Rambam quote at the end of this halacha? The same baraita that He quoted in the letter. Which, fascinatingly, a baraita that's lost. We don't have this baraita. The Rambam had it and He quotes it all the time. We can't find it. Fascinatingly enough. Nonetheless, he says, He goes, first of all, he says, when you look at these things, can, uh, so so uh, the important thing is, uh, I'll quote, he quotes the Midrash in a second, right, the Baraita in a second. The Rambam then says, because this is true, I'm going to start teaching you the principles of science and nature. In the Mishneh Torah, I'm putting it in to the book so that you can begin to have an opening, and then you develop. He goes, look, you should know, the Greeks wrote a great deal about this, go read, says, but he goes, but based on these points, I'm going to explain to you great principles from the acts of God, right, of the creator, of the master of the world. So it should be an opening for a person who's able to know these things, to love God. So I'm going to teach you science so that you can love God. I'm going to teach you about the world and how it works so that you can love God. As Achamim said, with regards to Arvash, from learning that, 
you come to get to know the one who created the world. And the Rambam says, there's no way out of this in Hilchot Teshubah. You can't love God in any other way. You cannot love God, right? That, that the, 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 it's known that the love of God does not get into a person's heart unless he's constantly thinking on it. In the right way. And all other goals in the world should be left. This should be the only goal is to be able to know God. And everything else should facilitate that. Then he says, But you can't love God. The only, the only way that you can know love God is to the degree that you know Him. And it's in that degree, in the exact ratio, says Haramban. The more what you know is how you love. Because to love Him, to know Him is to love Him. So the degree you know Him is the degree that you love Him. If you know a little bit, then you love Him a little bit. If you know Him more, of course you're going to love Him more because you know more. And that's what he puts out. Right, so now it could be that Rabbi Dweck's doing his usual thing and like making the major, major case for you know for the alternative, right? That, that's what I'm doing. The reality is, the reality is, and I don't want to jump the gun. I'm going to get there, but I will say at this point, there are risks to this approach, serious ones, but there are risks to the alternative approach as well, serious ones. What are the risks to this approach, to the Rambam's approach, right? To the approach that we always espouse in the Habura, and then you know we make this our uh, our our kind of you know uh, key ideals. The risks are that we get lost in the world. In other words, if we do not engage in the study of the world with this frame, and for that matter, have a substantial and sufficient frame of Torah, there is risk. I'm not saying this will happen with every single person, but there is significant risk of loss and attrition. In other words, right, a person studies secular ideas, quote-unquote secular ideas. And by the way, I, I want to make a point, right? As far as Hanabam is concerned, when one studies anything in this frame, Right, you're studying anything within the the creation of the world, right? Which includes, I always say, right, it's not just science. Certainly mathematics, certainly science, but it's not just that. It's any output of the human mind. Why? Because you're studying the human mind. You're studying the nature of humanity. It's like you know, you God showed Moshe Rabbeinu everything that was in creation, everything except the human beings. No, the human beings and the human mind and human creativity was not shown to Moshe Rabbeinu and all of that? Well, of course it was. That's what we expect. So of course it's everything. If it's in creation, it's fair game for all intents and purposes. I said many times, yes, there are things that are toxic, that are not easy for us to absorb, that we have to be careful with. And it all has to do with where we are, right? In terms of our capacity to absorb it and deal with it. But anybody who studied Talmud, anybody who studied Talmud, realistically and if they are if they are intellectually honest will admit that there is no subject under the sun and something's over the sun that the hachamim are not comfortable speaking about there's nothing in this world that the hachamim are not comfortable speaking about and bring into the table and discuss openly and readily if it's part of the human condition they speak about it if it's part of the world in nature they speak about it they speak about it to the best of their ability to be able to speak about it but they do 
They don't say that's not Torah. The problem is, is that if it is not framed in Torah, there is an absolute risk of complete loss. What does that mean? It means that a person can become completely secular, right? So I, I didn't finish my, my, my point on that. My point on that is, is that in the framework of Torah, in studying it in order to be able to come to know God, if that is the, the goal, everything that one studies is essentially an extension of Torah. It's very important to understand. It's not Torah umada. I'm not studying the Mada because it's valuable for me as a human being to have knowledge of Mada alongside my Torah. No, there's only one thing. It's knowing God. I study Torah in order to be able to build a framework through which I can understand the world. To give It is the framework that gives meaning to an otherwise meaning-neutral world. Right? Consider the fact that the world as it comes to us does not bring any meaning with it. We give the meaning to the world. Okay, then the question is, well, what frame of meaning are you going to use in order to be able to understand the otherwise miscellaneous world? Well, we're going to use Torah. That's what we're going to use. And Torah is a meaning system, right? It's a system of meaning. It provides value to everything. So we use the Torah. We study the Torah. No, it's not like nobody would ever suggest that Haram Bab did not hold the study of Torah as a massive value. Nobody would ever expect that, right? Nobody would say, well, you know, I mean, you know, do a little bit uh, of study, learn a few halachot, and, and then go to university. The Rambam would never advocate for that. No, we need to have robust knowledge of Torah in order to be able to have a system of meaning that really defines the miscellaneous world for us, and then get out there and, and, and have a look at the world and what its nature is. Why? Because if you're studying the world genuinely, you're studying the nature of reality. And if you're studying the nature of reality, you are studying the expressions of the ultimate reality, capital R, which we call God. And that's essential. Is there risk in that? Yes, there is risk in that. Because if I don't have the proper frame, I lose myself in the world. And it definitely risks attrition. And it risks, for that matter, uh, 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 what we might call heresy. A complete loss of any relationship to the frame of Torah and its meaning and so on. Yes, that is a risk. Absolutely, it's a risk. So it always looks like that it's safer on the other side. Why does it look like it's safer on the other side? Because the trappings are stronger, ostensibly. So there is much more effort built into the the, uh, borders and guards that maintain the spores of what will ever develop into the Jewish people within these trappings, which is why they're called trappings. They trap, right? They hold things in. Yeah. Which is why, like I said, from a a value-neutral perspective, it's successful, right? From a numbers point of view, simply, right? And a population point of view, it's successful. And because of that success, right? Now, when we talk about success, you'll say, for example, people will have asked me over the years, right? How was your class? I'll say it was very good. How, next question, in, almost immediately, when someone asks me, is that how many people? How many people came to your class? Why is that the next question? Why should the next question be, was it clear? Did people feel that they were inspired by it? Did people come out knowing a little bit more as a result of sitting in the class? To me, that's a successful class. Right. If I give a class and I've got 100 people, but my class wasn't clear and people didn't learn anything or they learned very little and I didn't end up getting what I wanted across, that was a failure of a class. doesn't matter if there were 600 people there. 
But that's not the question that people ask. People ask how many people were there. A hundred people? Amazing. And that's the end of the question. Nobody ever, no, no one really asks, you know, was it a coherent class? Were there any, uh, you know, people come out and learn? Why? Because for us, we are trained that that is success. And in some capacities, that is success. You know, if the statistics are right, it may very well be that as far as population is alone, right, as far as population is concerned, it may very well be that the Haredi approach is going to be the winners with regards to population and population growth and, and uh, uh, you know, um, holding their, holding its numbers. They won't suffer as much from attrition and loss. The question is, what's the risk on the other side? Is there a risk on the other side? I believe, yes, of course there's a risk on the other side. The risk is equally, if not greater, than the risk on the alternative. What is that? Well, first of all, if it is true, uh, Harambam's premise, that the way to know God is to be able to study the world, and that we really don't have any other access to it, right? In other words, what you're doing when you're studying Torah is you're studying the system of meaning, but you don't end up looking at how to use that system of meaning. We don't ever end up coming to know God, which is a very hard thing to say. But that's a big risk. It's a huge risk, actually. So the Rambam writes in, in the Moreh something similar to this. And he says, um, he says, right, So a person who talks a lot about God and speaks his name without knowing him. And we've already established how it is that one is supposed to know him. So it says Baruch Hashem all the time, or talks about, you know, Hashem in, in various ways. It says Hashem, Hashem, you know, all the time. But doesn't really know Him. They either have like whatever it is that they've got in their head that they consider God to be. Or just somebody that somebody told them that is not necessarily appropriate in terms of what we believe God to be, what we understand Him to be. He goes, as far as I'm concerned, the Rambam says, in my opinion, this person is far outside the courtyard. What is he talking about the courtyard? Because he gave this, this, this mashal, right? This analogy of a palace, right? The king's palace and how close is one to God or, you know, in terms of how close one is to the king, so to speak, in his palace. And he talks about this virtual palace that all has to do with a person's awareness and understanding and how close they can get. He says he's not even in the courtyard. He's, he's outside the, the vicinity of the palace. And the reality is, he's really not talking about God, actually. When he says Hashem, without knowing what it means, what it is that he means when he says it. Or is he thinking about him? Whatever it is that a person has in their mind, that he speaks, is not, doesn't fit with the matsui, with this existence, right? This matsui rishon, this primal existence we call God. It's something he made up in his head. Well, if you ask me, that's a pretty significant risk. Because it's a potential loss of God. 
And one, according to Ramam, cannot say that one is talking about or praying to or engaging with God simply because they say God's name. Is that enough? That's number one. Number two, there's another issue. Another risk. And the risk is that a person loses connection with the world. In other words, the more that there is a hunkering down, right? So I said, Hakam definitely believed, Hakam definitely believed that all one needed to study was Torah. Anything outside of that was logistical, but otherwise everything, every effort should be made to, to study. But Hakam also was not detached from the world around him. He may not have known all of the, you know, he may not have been able to, to you know, to be David Attenborough, right? And talk about, you know, the, the nature in that way. And he may not have, you know, been on the same wavelength as Rav Lichtenstein Zatzal, right? You know, when Rav Lichtenstein was talking about philosophical ideas, Arambam was not, excuse me, Hakam was not necessarily in that place or in that mindset. But he was extremely sensitive to the world and where I was going. He listened to the news every single day, several times a day. He was always engaged with people, listening to people, engaged in life and so on and so forth, which is significant. But the more that one hunkers into the ideal of only Torah and that there's nothing intrinsic that secular society brings me that's valuable and that all I need is the confines of the Midrash or my neighborhood or my family and people and so on and so forth, the less they become connected to the world around them and they lose what we call dot. And dot is not knowledge in the sense of knowing things. Dot is a capacity to be able to relate to the world around one that one lives in. Now, I'm saying that simply as, as, as a postulate right now. I gave an entire shiur on this in the Hebrew Chabura, right, side. So if you want, listen to that, where I define what's da'at and I explain why that's da'at and so on and so forth. I'm going to leave that there. But I'm putting it out as a postulate. That's what da'at is. And the risk of, of living in the alternative on the more Haredi side of things and it's not every Haredi, but it's certainly a risk, is that one loses Da'at. And there's a range to how much one can lose Da'at, but one could lose it to the point that a person can be a tremendous knowledge, have tremendous wisdom in Torah, and not have Da'at. And not really have relationship to the world outside. So they can know Shas by heart. They can tell you every Halakha and Shuhan Aruch. And they could have spent decades studying this and still not have real connection and sensitivity to people's lives, the world outside, and what's actually happening in the world in human society. And the Hachamim say the following about a person who has great Chochman Torah, but no Da'at. It says, Any Talmud Hacham that doesn't have Da'at, a carcass, a corpse, is better than him. Because there's no capacity for interface. The whole point of the study of Torah is to be able to have sensitivity of how it is it's meant to be used in the world. How it is it's meant to be an interface and a framework to be able to engage in the world. And they use Moshe Rabbeinu as an example. They said, who is a greater hacham than Moshe Rabbeinu? And they give all the examples of everything that Moshe did and knew. He spoke to the angels. He went up and got the Torah. He did all the miracles. He was unbelievable. And how do we know his value? Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when he came into the Mishkan, right? HaKadosh Baruch Hu filled the Mishkan. Moshe did not enter the Mishkan until he was called. Because he knew it was inappropriate to enter until HaKadosh Baruch Hu calls you. And that's his great, great, uh, you know, Sheva. There's just the sensitivity of what's appropriate 
interpersonal connections, and so on and so forth. How this needs to be manifest. There's a very interesting uh, Gemara, and I want to be clear that when I show you this Gemara, I'm not saying in any way that Rab Papa did not have that. I'm simply showing it as an example of how Rava, right? Rava spoke to Rab Papa about one small incident that Rab Papa didn't have kind of an awareness of that was very well known in the world, right? Which could be understood, right? Well, again, Rab Papa spent all of his time studying Torah and so on and so forth. Interestingly, Rab Papa is always the one in the Gemara, by the way, that says, Hainu Reinshi, right? Whenever the Gemara is talking about some concept or idea, Rab Papa is always the one who says, you know, it's what people say in society. They have, a, they have a proverb or they have an adage about this, a quote about this, and they'll always bring the, the, the external secular quote into the Gemara. But nonetheless, in this particular story, it's a very cute story, right? It's an interesting story. They're having a discussion, right? Interestingly, they're having a discussion about Tzara'at, right? Different negaim and how they look. And it ends up getting into this thing where they use this analogy. It's like a king and his governor. Right? In other words, this ratio, this relationship between one and the other, or different levels of authority. Right? They get into this whole discussion. As the Gemara often does, it flows into other discussions, gets into this discussion. So now they want to give examples of who's a higher authority in relation to another. So Ravaz says, oh, it's like King Shvor Malka Vekesar. It's like the same kind of re- relationship between King Shapur of Persia and Caesar. So Rav Papa is sitting and listening to this, and it's obvious, like he doesn't have to qualify what he's saying, Rav. Everybody knows that Caesar is much greater than, you know, King Shapur of Persia. You know, he's, he's much more powerful and has greater, greater, uh, uh, you know, p- uh, extension, you know, uh, of his power. So Rav Papa, Marle Rav Papa, Rava, he goes, what do you mean? Which one is stronger? Like, which one's greater, Caesar or, or King Shapur? So, so it was an innocent question. He didn't know. So Rava says to him, Amar le what, what are you, eating in the, the bush? Like, what are you, out in the forest? Do you eat in the forest? Like, what, where have you, you've been under a rock? Is what he says to Rav Papa, right? Which I love that they keep the language between the hachamim, you know, the dialogue between the hachamim, yeah? So he says to him, He goes, go look at the coins. See how, whose coins are prevalent in all the world. Caesar's face is on every coin. You can see that. Of course, he's much bigger. Where have you been? You haven't been in the world, right? Which Tarabah was not okay. Like he said, Tarabah, how could you not know that? Okay, so it's a minor issue, but I'm simply bringing that in as a point. Further, and I understand that we're late with time, but I'm going to close this off, right? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to take an, uh, I'm 10 minutes and close it off. Anybody who needs to leave can leave. There's another problem. So there's already two risks. One risk is that a person doesn't know HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's just huge. Another risk is that a person loses Da'at. The more insular and the more re- removed and divorced from the world they become. The third risk is that the Torah itself becomes dangerous to them. Because the Torah is not, there's not a fail-safe. There is no such thing as simply because I read the words of the Torah, I am studying Torah. The frame of Torah means everything. The Hachamim say in Masichet Ta'anit, Tanya, Hayar Rabbi Bena'a, Omer Rabbi Bena'a would say, Kol Ausek Torah Lishma, Torah Ton Ased Lo Sam Hayim. If a person engages in Torah appropriately, for its appropriate sake, for its own sake, it becomes an elixir of life for that person. 
says it is a tree of life to those who cling to it. It is a, a healing for yourself, for your head. Right? But a person engages in Torah without appropriate approach to it, right? without the appropriate intent, it becomes a death potion for the person. The same Torah. So and gives a reason for it. There's another Gemara that says it's just a matter, it's not even about It's just about whether a person is Maiminba or Masmilba, right? Whether a person is doing things in the right way or in the wrong way. Studying things in the right way or in the wrong way. How is Bozabon study things the right way and wrong way? So that's a big question. But I could genuinely be studying Torah my entire life and be stuck with what's called the Samamavit, with a potion of death. Has v'shalom. Not saying that this is what's happening. I'm saying that it's a risk. And it's a genuine one. As it says in Yehazkel, in the Pasuk, hukim lo tovim, lo HaGadosh Baruch Hu says, I also gave them laws that are not good and statutes that they cannot live by. The thing, the very mitzvot that I gave them can turn on them if they don't approach them appropriately. I have here a famous line, famous lines from the Maharal of Prague, who is 16th century. This is 16th century, the Maharal of Prague. And he is railing against the pilpul that was prevalent, still is, right, in many yeshivot, that was prevalent in the yeshivot. The pilpul were the, were the, all these ba- arguments back and forth that didn't get to the point of halakha and practical application of law. But just simply conjecture, right and left, and 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 it became very prevalent in the yeshivot, especially in Hungarian yeshivot. So what does he say? He says, "Atem talmidim yekarim." He goes, "I'm speaking to you, my my precious talmidim." Right now, he, this is after a very long thing that he's written. Right. He goes, "God gave you a heart to understand, to listen. He gave you knowledge to be able to absorb and hear." Your strength should be to Torah. Don't give yourself to these lies that people tell you that this pilpul is the way to study. This is just why am I giving this? I'm saying as an example. These people were going into yeshivot, right? These boys were being sent to yeshivot to sit and study in the yeshivot, and the Maharal is saying it's a disaster. I'll tell you how much of a disaster. He says, he says, um, he goes, Why are you wasting your time with emptiness that has no reward to it? He's not talking about them going to work. He's talking about going to yeshiva. Could you imagine that you're actually going to get reward for this kind of study? You know that there's no, there's no dawn to these things, right? The sun's never going to rise around these things. It's all darkness. You should be concerned in your souls for the embarrassment and debasement of Torah. And then he says down here, I said, I'll tell you, I've seen young men whose hearts are as wide as an open hall to the point they could, they could hold the entire Torah in their minds. I've seen the, such talented young men and they go in and they study these pilpulim and the yeshivas and they get lost. It's like every other Ahmad. Hi Hashem, he says, 
by the by God as God lives, right? The living God, he says, which is an oath. Is it not fitting to rip our clothes over seeing this like a Sefer Torah is being burned? Why am I bringing you this? Simply to show you. The study of Torah is not a fail-safe. There are right ways to study and there are very wrong ways to study. And it is not enough simply to say, just study. And that's one of the reasons why, as far as these Faradim were concerned, the way that we would teach always was to teach a frame. Right, we started when the children were young. So do Deshkenazim did this until a certain point in history. We started when they were young, taught them psukim, all of the psukim, and then we went in order. And the Maharal writes about that, that that's how it's supposed to be done. From Mikra, we went to Mishnah, from Mishnah, we went to Talmud. And that has a framework that it builds. It builds a system of knowledge and a way, a lens through which one can see the world. That's what it's meant to be. So there is risk. I'm going to end only with this. There's other stuff that I wanted to point out, but I end with this. When we talk about Haredi, I want to talk about what the word is. The word itself means shaking, right? That's what it means. So why are they called? Why do they call themselves Haredim? They call themselves Haredim because they shake at the word of God, essentially, right? In other words, that they are so concerned with the word of God, they shake out of fear, which is very telling. Because it does mean, and I think that this is the fundamental aspect, it does mean that at the base of the entire system is fear. And rarely does it ever move beyond that. And Harambam says, look, fear is a nice place to start, but it's not where we want to end up. We always want to move from fear to love. And even the fear, right? What's the fear that they have? The fear is that they're going to transgress a word of God and then be punished. That's what the idea of the fear of the Haredi is, right? That you don't want Hasridim to transgress the word of God and then be punished. And this, by the way, I didn't speak about this at all. It's that fear that facilitates the Humrah culture, right? In other words, the more Mahmir we are, ostensibly, the more safe we are from transgressing anything and therefore saving ourselves from any kind of punishment. And that is a major line of culture that runs through the entire system. And that's why, because it is based in fear. The fear that Harambam speaks about, right? The Yirat Hashem that Harambam speaks about. Remember, I told you I saw it. I'm not reading, but I'll read it to you now. The fear that Harambam talks about is not that kind of fear. It's a reverence of recognizing that Akadosh Baruch Hu is there and here is me. And me in relation to Akadosh Baruch Hu is, it, it makes me reel back in reverence, recognizing who am I and what am I really in the face of the greatness of God. And so he says over here, the way, I didn't put it down here, but in the rest of the halakha, where he talks about the ira, he says, how do you get to ira? He goes, when you start to calculate what is really the universe and how it is that it runs and comes to be, and you realize who you are and what you are in the massiveness of all of that, you reel back in absolute reverence and awe in front of God. And you watch what you do and say because you realize who you really are in the light of everything and it keeps your, your um, what's it called? Your, con- your, your haughtiness, right? In check. Your arrogance in check. When you realize really what it is that one is in the world. 
That's the Yira that Arambam is, is, is talking about, is a mitzvah de oraita. It's not the other. So I suggest that there is an alternative. And that if we are going to be stronger in terms of our Judaism and our observance and our dedication, the Haredi route is not the only route and it certainly is not the ultimate way to be, I, I'm suggesting. There is an alternative. And the alternative is what Harambam suggests. Are there risks? Yes. But there are risks on both sides. Very serious ones. Yes, indeed. It's the same risks that the brothers, like I said, it's the brothers and Yosef. They knew that Yosef was a risk and they didn't want to go down that path. But Yosef also knew that they were a risk and he didn't want to go down that path. And this has been a difference between us for a very long time in very many different ways. But at the core, it's what it is. So what I'm suggesting is there's an alternative type of Haredi. If you look at the Mikra, the word Haredi always includes shock. It's not fear. It's shock. Right? It's a shuddering that comes from shock. Surprise. So here in Yeshayah it says, which is where the whole Haredi nomenclature comes from, this Pasuk, right? Says Yeshaya, listen to the word of God, those who are Haredim el Devaro, who shudder by his word. That's where it comes from. What does it mean to shudder? So Rashi simply says, it's Sadiqim it's that shudder to run towards his word. Right? It's not afraid of, of, of being punished. It's they shudder to make sure they get to him, find him, connect to him. So there's not the only place that we find the word harit. Take a look over here. Yosef says to his brothers when he's paro, they think he's this, the viceroy. He says, no, you know, they were terribly worried. Why? Because they open their sacks and they find all of the money is in their sacks that they were supposed to pay for the grain. So it says, Vayomer al-Hab, Yosef said to his brothers, Hushav kaspi, oh, I got my money. Don't worry about it. Vigam hine be'am tahti. It's all in my bag. Bam, And he says, their hearts sunk, right? They were all shocked. They said, how did this work? How did this happen? Also, when Yitzhak realizes that he gave the Biracha to Yaakov instead of Esau, uses the word Hared again. Same word. Yitzhak shuddered. Says Rashi, what does that mean? It's like Unklos. Translated it. How does Unklos translate harada? The shon It's a language of surprise. That's what it means to be hared l'varashem. That what? Always be prepared to be surprised by God. Recognize that he may surprise you very, very seriously when you come to understand certain truths about the nature of his world and what it is that he wants. And what that means is that a Haredi really needs to always be looking at the world and understanding it. Always needs to be open to the fact that he or she may not have the answers. That he or she may very well be surprised by what Kadosh Baruch Hu puts forward in his world and that you may be shocked by it. But a Haredi is always open to that shock. Always able to recognize that. And that means... That there's an openness to the world. There's an openness to where it is that things are going. There's an openness to, to issues that have not been seen or accepted or known yet. 
And although the Hatam Sofer wrote several times, and I have it on the sheets in the bottom, uh, uh, he uses the, the line from Hadash, right? That, you know, the new crops are, are forbidden until Pesach. So it's the second day of Pesach. So he says, you know, Hadash Asur Minat Torah. There's many times in his in his Chuvot, he would write Hadash Asur Minat Torah. Anything new is Asur from the Torah B'chom HaKom. Don't do anything new. And so that has that line has been espoused by the Haredi community, right? As a major, as a general rule, we don't take anything new. And that may be very safe. And the truth of the matter is, okay, so that may be the case. But one must always recognize that at the end of the day, like the Rambam says, the world that one keeps oneself away from so diligently is the way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu expresses himself. And the more that I keep myself away from it, the further I potentially go from being able to know him. And that, again, in my humble opinion, it's only my opinion, is one of the biggest risks, risks that anyone who is dedicated to knowing God and following Him in His Torah that anybody could take. Because the risks on the other side are formidable. So, that is simply uh, an approach. It's the opening shiur because I hope that it gives a sense as to why the Habura uh, is important, why we started it. And again, it is an alternative approach. I am certainly not saying that everybody should, you know, stop being Haredim. I'm not saying that. I think that there's value to what it is that they bring to Am Yisrael. There's elements that they bring that need we need to remember sometimes. They teach us things that we forget. And it's very important. I say that genuinely. I say that absolutely genuinely. But we have to understand that we choose this way. And there's very good reason why we choose this way. And that it's not a question of what is higher or lower. It's a question of what is the appropriate path in order to be able to get to. And we believe that this is the appropriate path and these are the reasons why. So I'm going to put the link for the full uh, source sheet uh, up and you can have that. And um, and I wish everybody a successful year. We do have, like, the, like was said, wonderful teachers for this uh, term. And I hope that everybody's able to take advantage and I wish everybody a Shana Tova Murechet, Tiskurashanim Rabot, Naimot Vitovot, Tarihu Yamim, and it should be a year of Biracha and Hatzlacha, both in our Talmud Torah and our knowledge of Akadosh Baruch Hu and our service of Him. Amen, Kenyiratso. Okay, so I do that. Thank you so much, Chacham. Uh, usually we would take questions, but for the sake of time, we are going to bring it to a close. We do have our WhatsApp groups that everyone can join and discuss and uh, also our WhatsApp groups to stay updated. Uh, going forward this Wednesday, we're going to be back. We're going to have Rav Yochai Matubili. We're going to discuss what is Maaseh Bereshit and what is Maaseh Merkava, which I believe is a beautiful transition from this shiur. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Thank you so much, Chacham, for another fundamental and uh, beautiful presentation. And may that's over, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi.